I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the word deacon, but if you look it up in the Bible dictionary, it doesn't say Keith, Caleb, Caleb, Tim. No, it does not say that, but it does say, and I quote, the term deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, meaning servant or minister. The word, which appears at least 29 times in the New Testament, designates an appointed member of the local church who assists by serving other members in meeting material needs, unquote. As Tim read earlier, the scripture, that is the subject of the message here this morning, deacons. However, given that definition, I thought to myself, does this mean that if you aren't categorized as a deacon in the local body, that you don't need to serve other members? Of course not. Yet sadly, many churches, thankfully not ours, find themselves with few, if any, members willing to serve, or if opportunities to serve do come up, the response is, no thanks, that's not my job. Recently I read a, a true story of a time when a young reporter interviewed Bud Wilkerson, who was the coach of the top-ranked Oklahoma Sooners at that time. The reporter enthusiastically asked, Coach Wilkinson, tell us what contribution collegiate football has made toward physical fitness in America. What do you mean? Asked the dumbfounded reporter when Wilkinson says, I do not believe that football has made any contribution to physical fitness in America. I define football as 22 men on the field desperately needing rest and 50,000 people on the stands desperately needing exercise. What a description, as one commentator said, of the local church in America as Christianity is often just a spectator sport. And that it is for many churches as people come on Sunday mornings and give God that hour, no more, maybe an hour and a half, and then the rest of the week is all theirs without any consideration as how they may serve others. Galatians 5.13 For brethren, you have been called into liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. 1 Peter 4.8-10 says, And above all things have fervent charity or love among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging or grumbling. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And this first Peter 4 passage goes on in verse 11 to say, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles or utterance of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. In essence, we can minister, we can serve. Why? Because God, God gives us the ability to do so. So who gets the glory? Not us, God. As we go through these verses today, I'd like not only the deacons, but every, every single one of you to think about your own service for the Lord. The question really to ask yourself is this, have I been faithful to serve the Lord with the gifts that he has given me or have I simply remained a spectator? That is the title for today's message. Faithfulness in serving. So let's pray 
and just ask the Lord to bless this time. Father, thank you for the words here in First Timothy. Thank you for our own deacons and how they do serve. And I pray, Lord, that we would all ask ourselves this question. Are we faithful with the gifts you have given us? Or are we on the sidelines thinking only of ourselves? So I pray that you would bless uh, what I've learned and be able to share it in a way that others can partake as well. So I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A small passage. I broke this up into four sections. So the first one is actually not in 1 Timothy, but I want you to turn your Bibles back to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and I want to read the first seven verses. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. I called this first section a deacon's origin. Now, some scholars may debate that because the actual word deacon is not used in these verses here in Acts, that these seven men mentioned were not technically deacons per se. Yet I think it's fair to say that the majority of commentators conclude that the author of the book Luke was indeed describing the first appointment of deacons within the church. And the task... From verses 2 and 3, it was managing the distribution of food to widows. You should also note here that the word serve tables is translated as diakonos, the same verb form for which we get our title deacon that I mentioned earlier and included in 1 Timothy. These seven were appointed in order to keep the apostles from being distracted from their focus on prayer and the preaching of the word of God. Again, time doesn't permit me to go into all these verses, but I do want to give you a few of the godly characteristics of these deacons just to compare what we'll look at in 1 Timothy. So verse 3, we're going to hone in on that verse. There are seven men. Note that the call was for men and not women. Verse 3, honest report, good reputation, good reputation in the church and outside the church. Verse 3, they were full of the Holy Ghost, meaning they were walking in the Spirit. They were sensitive to the things of the Lord, living a life where the fruit of the Spirit is evident. Again, verse 3, full of wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Not only having godly wisdom, but what I call practical wisdom, knowing how to accomplish things. In essence, the deacons relieve the elders of practical tasks so they can devote themselves to the shepherding responsibilities. And then lastly, verse 3, faithful in serving. And while not stated here, it is certainly implied that these men have proved their faithfulness 
and that's why they were selected. I like how one commentator described this section, and I quote, because much of the New Testament teaching on deacons deals with the character requirements of the office, deacons would be assigned tasks requiring maturity and wisdom, which would be inappropriate to assign to a novice believer. Similarly, because the New Testament makes clear that deacons are to be tested and then publicly recognized, it follows that deacons would be entrusted with responsibilities which, if mishandled, would bring reproach upon Christ and his church. Therefore, the task of deacons should be those requiring a qualified, tested, and faithful servant. On behalf of the elders, I can tell you that we work hand-in-hand with our deacons here. We visit with them every week. More informally, we meet with them periodically to discuss major or, or bigger things. And they have taken a lot of pressure off us as elders. And while we see that the qualifications of a deacon does not include being apt to teach, which Kent covered um, last week, I asked myself, could these men teach if they had to? No doubt they could. Which reminded me of a story, and maybe you've heard of it. It's a true story about a deacon named John Eglin, January 6th, 19. Sorry, 1850. Here's the story. On Sunday morning, January 6, 1850, John Englund woke to a town buried in snow. Why bother going to church, he thought. But then, being the faithful deacon that he was, he walked six miles to church in the snow. Would you walk six miles to church? Even the pastor could not make it in that morning. Indeed, only 12 members showed up and one visitor, a 13-year-old boy who had ducked in to escape the cold and snow. Some suggested going home, but Eglin refused. After all, they did have a visitor. But who would preach? Who would preach? Eglin was the man, although he had never preached before. The text was from Isaiah 45:22. And the sermon was only 10 minutes long. Not elegant, far from perfect. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none other. Gathering a bit of courage, Eglin looked straight at the visitor and said, Young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. And that boy did look that morning. It was instantly and gloriously saved. And it was a good thing that England didn't stand bad. That young boy was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. All because England was faithful in serving. Second section. We're back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. I call this section a deacon's qualifications. As Kent shared last Sunday, Paul has just finished telling Timothy about what qualifications to look for in a pastor or elder. And here in our opening sentence, the first word we see is likewise, meaning we're now transitioning to a new subject, and that will be the qualifications for deacons. 
It's interesting that not only for elders, but now here for deacons, the standard is really, really high. Why so high a standard? I guess the opposite should be asked. Why not so high a standard? Leaders who serve in the church do have a greater weight of responsibility and therefore a greater weight of accountability. For in this position, they have a great influence on others. However, being an elder is not, and I repeat, is not a status symbol, but rather a position of humility. For God is the one who has qualified that person, and God is the one who should get the credit. So what are these qualifications? Let's go through these first eight. Grave or reverent. The ESV says they must be dignified. The NASP says men of dignity. This is a key qualification for in essence it means someone whose character is honorable and respectable. He's not a jokester. For a deacon must take his responsibilities seriously. And note that based upon this first qualification, which I'll call dignity, Paul adds clarity to this with three negatives. Again, verse 8, not double-tongued. What is this? Simply put, not hypocritical. He is sincere in his words, and he doesn't tell one person one thing and another person something different and that the truth doesn't change based on the audience. One other thing is this lies, and it's very important. A deacon is to keep confidences and not let his tongue run loose. Second negative, not given to much wine. In those days, wine was commonly served as a gesture of hospitality, so it was important for a deacon to exercise self-control or else he could become drunk. Fast forward to 2022. As Kent shared last week, I would agree wholeheartedly that the commitment of self-control is even more important today when it comes to wine or any type of alcohol. Really the question for any elder or deacon or even for all of you is not can I drink wine? Can I drink alcohol? But the question is why? Why should I drink alcohol or wine? Oh, oh, I have self-control. Well, you may have, but your neighbor, your friend, your relative, your acquaintance might not. And why be a stumbling block and poor example to those who can't handle it? I am, I've worked for this company for 42 years, and I am so thankful because we lease space to businesses. That's what we do. And uh, we have had a policy for 42 years that we don't lease any alcohol stores. Liquor stores, no. Um, They call, they call repeatedly, no. Because we don't want to be supporting an industry that has caused untold heartache for, for millions of people. Third negative, not greedy, a filthy lucre. Again, as Kent shared concerning an elder, a deacon cannot be greedy for money, or the ESV says not greedy of dishonest gain. He must be a man of integrity, especially since he's involved in the finances of the church. 
then going on, verse 9, holding to the truth of God's word. The King James uses the word mystery for the truth that was once hidden, but now it has been revealed in Christ. The essence of this qualification is simply that a deacon must be a man of conviction regarding the central truths of his Christian faith. Paul's reference here to a pure conscience is probably in reference to the false teachers in Ephesus who had not kept a good conscience and thus had suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. 1 Timothy 1.19, which we studied a while back, says, Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. If a deacon does not hold to the truth of God's word, how can he properly manage the affairs of the church? Verse 10, must be proved, must be blameless. A deacon must first be examined, and upon such examination be found to be blameless or above reproach. This doesn't refer to a probation after a person becomes a deacon, similar to what you have in an employment situation, but rather a man has an observed track record before he is put into office. He is tested first, then recognized for the qualifications. As I went through this, again, back to all of you men and young men, while we see the qualifications here for deacons in a leadership role, shouldn't these be things we're all striving for? Very practically speaking, what defines a man who is faithful in serving as a leader? Three things stuck out to me as I looked at these qualifications. First, faithfulness in leading by example. In our next chapter, 1 Timothy, we'll be studying that exact topic. Chapter 4, verse 12, Let no man despise or look down on thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation or conduct, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. There's a lot in those words. Just like for deacons, men, you need to be examples in your home in everything you do. In your conduct, you must be grave, not double-tongued, not given to wine, not greedy of gain. Simply put, you are modeling Christ in front of your family and others. Secondly, as a leader, faithfulness in leading by being humble. After Christ watched the disciples' feet, afterward he said in John 13, 15-16, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Men like Christ demonstrated himself, be a leader who is faithful and being humble, even in those things that you may think are below you. I would hope I would never hear any of you say things like, I don't do diapers, or I don't do laundry, or I don't do dishes. That is like Christ saying, I don't do feet. Obviously, nothing could be further from the truth, and we are to remain humble. And then lastly, faithfulness in leading by pointing people to Christ and not to yourself. In other words, who gets the glory? God gets the glory. To God be the glory. Great things 
He has done. Well, moving on, let's look at our third section, verses 11 and 12. So I'll read those. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. I call this third section a deacon's family. Now I said at the beginning, as we begin this section, I'll tell you up front, there is much, much controversy around verse 11 as to whether this is speaking to wives of deacons or to women in general and whether women are qualified to be in the role of a deacon or more commonly known in most churches, a deaconess. If you compare translations, especially among the five that I consider very reliable, this is what we find. King James, even so their wives. New King James, likewise their wives. ESV, their wives. NASB, women must be likewise. Revised Standard, the women likewise must be. So you can see there's a blend here of wives and women. If you look the Greek word up, it's gynekos. It can mean wife or women or woman, depending on the context. Several of us men have been going through this book study on how to preach, basically. And if there's a thrust, it's context, context, context. So, <clears throat> how does this fit into the context? The question we have before us is, he's speaking of deacons' wives or women who are qualified to be a deacon. So I want to give you the arguments. I thought I'll just skip through this, but I'll give you the arguments on both. First, for women deacons or deaconesses. The word doesn't even appear in the Bible, but it's still commonly used in churches that I'll use it here as well. So, arguments four. Paul uses the word gynecos eight other times in 1 Timothy, and in most occurrences, women is the proper understanding. Number two, why would there be qualifications for deacons' wives, but not for elders' wives? Number three, there is no possessive modifier in the original Greek text. That means basically that there's no word there. Their wives is not found. And fourthly, they argue the use of the word likewise in verse 8. And then again in verse 11, my Bible says the word even so, would suggest a new category is being introduced, that of deaconesses. Now the arguments for deacons' wives. First, in the very next verse, verse 12, gynecus is understood as wife meaning let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. Secondly, if Paul were referring to deaconesses, why would he use the ambiguous word gynecus? He could have easily added a feminine modifier to the word to clearly communicate that he's referring to female deacons. Number three, if Paul were referring to deaconesses, why would he not include marriage qualifications for them as he had previously done for elders and male deacons in verse 12? And then verse 4, the structure of the passage is awkward. 
and seems inconsistent in that it goes from male deacon qualifications to female deacons and then back to male deacons. Now another argument that those in favor of it uses Romans 16.1 where it describes Phoebe as a servant of the church. Again, the word there is defined as diaconon or deacon. My Bible actually says in the footnotes that this context is better viewed as being a wife of a deacon. So, differences of opinion. So, arguments for, arguments against. And I may, if I were to poll you, you may have mixed opinions too. For the elders, we've really, I feel like we really studied this out. And our conclusion is that the passage is speaking of deacons' wives, not women in general. It comes down to three specific points, which I'll share with you. First, as I said, context. The structure of the passage, inserting a standalone sentence with a specific qualification for women, does not fit with the context. In verse 8, Paul says the deacons must be grave, dignified. And then in verse 11, even so must wives or women be grave, dignified. Why would Paul repeat the same word considering deaconesses? Secondly, marriage qualifications. The fact that Paul does not include marriage qualifications for women is troublesome. If in fact he is referring to deaconesses. The same I mean, the context seems intact by continuing to describe qualifications for male deacons and not describe a new office for deaconesses. And then thirdly, the use of the word diaconess. Why would Paul use the word diaconess in verse 12 if he is switching back to male deacons? In other words, why would he, just, why would he use women in verse 11 and then deacon in verse 12 versus just using women and men? One commentator in support of this said this, and I thought it was very helpful. Um, in light of the sensitivities surrounding deacons' work, in light of the fact that wives are often called upon to assist their husbands, particularly in addressing the needs of the church, one could see why Paul would have desired that the church be satisfied with the character of the candidate and his wife as they assess the suitability for the diaconate. That that is so true. Even our own church, the wives of the deacons are very involved. Thus, the qualifications. I do want to say that the question is not whether the Spirit gifts women to serve. He absolutely does. A point the New Testament underscores many, many times in many, many passages. And in fact, that's the thrust of my entire message today. Faithfulness and serving. All of us, men, women, and children, need to be faithful in serving the Lord. The question we need to ask is, are we? Are you? So, verse 11, what does verse, this verse spell out for the wives of a deacon? First, she must be grave. <clears throat> Just like her husband. Same word, grave. Dignified, worthy of respect. Secondly, not a slanderer. This, this is a biggie. She must be able to control her tongue. For if she is loose with her words, such gossip can destroy a church. 
as I said earlier, for the deacons, she must keep confidences. Thirdly, sober, tempered and able to be self-controlled, discerning the truth from error. Faithful in all things, such wives are dependable, reliable, trustworthy. Then we go to verse 12. We see additional aspects of a deacon's family. A deacon is to be a one-woman man. Just like for an elder, a deacon must be a man who is faithful in a marriage to his wife. A man who is morally pure. That's so important. A man who has not been divorced and remarried. And then finally, a deacon must be a man who rules his children and household well. I won't restate what Kent shared last week, but just summarize the qualification as a deacon is one who takes his role of spiritual leadership in the home very seriously. Again, men, how is your overseeing going in your own home? I often, we play these games as a family when we all get together. We get the husbands in one room and the wives in another Sometimes we get the children and other, and we ask the same question. And we all come back together, see how, what they wrote down. See if it's the same. I, I think it would be interesting to do that in this church. Men, you go down the hall, women over here, children over here. We're going to ask some questions. Then we're all going to come back together and see if you all say the same thing. Particularly, we'll zero in on the, the dad, the husband, the father, the spiritual leader of the family. Questions like, how's Brad doing at leading the family spiritually? Is he faithful in family worship? In reading the Bible? Leading the family in prayer? Being faithful in attending services with his family? How's Brad doing at washing his wife with the water of the word? Is he spending time daily? Reading God's Word and praying together with her? How is Brad doing at knowing the needs of each of his children? Is he setting aside time with all of them to be a good father? How is Brad doing at serving his family faithfully? On a scale of 1 to 10, where does Brad fit in? It all boils down to faithfulness, men. Faithfulness. You have to be faithful. Leading, washing, knowing, serving. That's the key. Last section, verse 13. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. I call this one a deacon's reward. My Bible says in the footnotes, this verse may be translated, for they who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and much joyful confidence in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. This good standing is spiritual progress acquired by faithful church service. Or as one author said, a faithful deacon is one who uses the office, not just fills it. And this is, should be such an encouragement to our own deacons. God will reward you in two ways. He will promote a deacon spiritually, give him more, more and more respect among the saints, which means greater opportunity for ministry. 
And he will give him a great boldness in witnessing as his faith steadily grows. As we uh, conclude here today, a few final thoughts for not only our deacons, but again for all of you as related to faithfulness and serving. And what better example to close with than to look at Christ and his faithfulness in serving. What can we look to Christ and see in his faithfulness? First, his availability. If you just read the scriptures, Christ was always available. Are you? Or are you too busy, or should I say, too lazy to serve? Secondly, his humility. Christ was always humble. Are you? Or do you want recognition for your service? Do you want that pat on the back? A deed well done. And who gets the glory? I do. That's not humility. Thirdly, his obedience. Christ was always obedient. Are you obedient to God's call when opportunities to serve present themselves? And lastly is perseverance. Christ always persevered. Oftentimes the daily task of serving others gets wearisome. And when I wrote that, I thought, I can't help but think of you mothers. I mean, every day, day in. Um, Barb and I with our grandkids the last few days, well, most of them. And um, it is a, it's a lot of work, a lot of work. And you mothers do it every day. So don't give up. Persevere. Persevere in your serving. May all of us remember Hebrews 6.10, and I'll close with this. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. I'd like to publicly thank our deacons and our deacon wives for all you do and your faithfulness in serving here in the body. And just to challenge all the rest of you, consider how faithful are you in serving. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for this account concerning deacons. I do thank you for each of these men who help us so much as elders and for their wives. Thank you for just uh, early on in their lives giving them the abilities to serve in this role. Pray, Lord, that you would continue to challenge the rest of us when opportunities present themselves to serve. Will we say no or will we say yes? I just pray that we would say yes. In Christ's name, amen.